welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Let us hear the word of God today. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's eternal word. May its impact be fresh upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for hearing the Word of God and being willing to have it taught over your hearts. As we talk about reaching the world today, I uh, wanted to begin by giving you a sense of how we are reaching the world as a congregation. Some of you are newer, and you may not even be that familiar with how we've done it over the years uh, of our history as a gathered people of God and what's going on around the world right now. And so I want to give you some context as I move into teaching this segment of Scripture. Um, First of all, I want to talk about the outreach that we have in real terms with real names and real faces. Uh, We support 25 different missionaries as individuals, couples, uh, and uh, or organizations, 25 around the world. And I'm just going to walk through them briefly, and you can learn more about them on our website, of course, and as you interact with our staff. Uh, Gene and Jen Arnold, we support their ministry with Mission Aviation Fellowship. Gene trains missionary pilots who will go out around the world from uh, a base right here in Spokane. Doug and Adele Cady, we support them as they work with Campus Crusade, now known as Crew, and they work uh, in different parts of the uh, difficult-to-reach segments of the world, bringing the the gospel by video into the language of people's yet to hear it. John and Sylvia Christensen, if you were here with us last week, you know all about their ministry with Wycliffe Bible Translators serving the Kizar people of Indonesia. Ryan and Jenny Dawson with Mission Padamo Aviation. Uh, They're also working with South American Mission. Currently, they're in Peru. My, they had a traveling life as they have sought to serve the Lord in missionary aviation, walking in faith and doing what God wants them to do. Carmen DeVries, we supported her for quite a while. Ethnos 360, they were here last week in our congregation, uh, the Ethnos 360 people. And uh, she serves in Papua New Guinea, where our church has had a a long outreach for many years. Bruce and Wendy DeVries with Mission Aviation Fellowship, uh, serving in an area of East Central Asia 
in uh, great and challenging times. Terry and Michelle Dryden, uh, we uh, ministered through the gospel for Asia through them. They minister out of Wills Point, Texas, but their ministry is felt through their outreach and work around the world. Dwight and Sarah Hires uh, with Northern Light Ministries in Mexico, building indigenous churches and leading in church planting there, a tremendous ministry. Jonathan and Susan Kopf with Ethnos 360, uh, planting churches in Papua New Guinea. We have worked with them and actually sent teams to those churches over the years. Jonathan was with us last year at this time, and you heard his story. Carol McNinch, also serving at the same mission point with Ethnos 360 in PNG. Jonathan Quinn Parlane with Wycliffe Bible Translators, serving the people of Bangladesh. Also, uh, Beth Taylor here in the United States doing urban missions, particularly to children with Child Evangelism Fellowship right here in our region. And Chris and Ashley Wick with Josiah Venture in Slovenia, and they have been ministering in that part of the world for almost a decade. So that's 23 different missionary uh, men and women as, the, as couples that we support. And then there are two other organizations we've supported for years. Able Ministries, founded right here in our city uh, by uh, missionary-minded men and women. And they reach West Africa, the countries of Ghana, Nigeria, Benin, and Burkina Faso. Dangerous territory, but the gospel flourishing through the many missionaries that they support in that environment. And the Union Gospel Mission, you're so familiar with them, reaching uh, people in the urban uh, areas of Spokane. That's who we support, and uh, that's how we reach the world. The, uh, the commitment that we have made over the years financially to this outreach has been significant. You may not know that we, uh, we send uh, $130,000 uh, each year at least overseas to support all of these uh, missionary endeavors. Uh, that's a rough number, uh, but uh, that is given over and above whatever is given to support our ministry here. Most churches, when you give uh, to ministry financially, it kind of goes into to one one uh, bucket, if you will, and, and a portion of that goes to missions. Years ago, that was not the policy we decided. We have a separate global outreach budget. And you only can give to that if you designate that. So let me take a sec and tell you if you're newer, newer, right in your, in your worship folder, there's a little guide about how to give. And if you're interested in supporting this work and you've been touched by what John and Sylvia told you last week, by what Jonathan related last year and what you've heard through the year, and you'd like to know how to give, but you're newer here, there's a little explanation we put in your worship folder. When it talks about how to give in the designated giving paragraph, you can see that our global outreach fund is separate from our overall fund. It's used to support our 25 full-time missionaries. And so we ask that you designate your gift for missions. You can designate it on the offering envelope, designate it on the check, or when you go online, which so many more of our people are doing, there's a way to set up a separate gift, and it's so easy and helpful. So now every year, about this time in the fall, pardon my play on words, but we tend to fall a little behind in that dimension of giving. People travel, things change, and uh, we're lagging in that dimension. And so I want to ask you to consider how God would move in your heart to maybe doing a special financial gift just designated to our global outreach uh, budget or maybe uh, adding to your normal gift. 
And every year, though we, 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 we seem to fall into a, a little uh, behind in the fall, it's amazing. The Lord rises to the occasion <laughs> and we always, uh, we, we hit that target. So I uh, want to just give you a little understanding about how, how all of that works. Now, as you're sitting here, particularly if you're newer, you might be thinking, wow, that's a lot of people reaching a lot of areas of the world, and that is a lot of money. And uh, I would say yes, but it's not nearly enough. Why? Because there is so much yet to be done, and there are so many people yet to be reached. Now let me talk about this as I begin to give you the context for how I'm going to teach Matthew 28. A lot of people uh, think about reaching the world today, and since our world is, tr- is shrinking through technology, we have a smaller sense of the world. We, we don't believe it's as immense as it is, and we feel more connected with it all the time. And some people might even ask the question, certainly by now, hasn't everyone heard the gospel? Hasn't every nation been reached? When Jesus said, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, hasn't that pretty much been done? Some people ask that question. And the answer depends on how you understand what Jesus said and what a nation really is. Now, the spread of Christianity has been nothing short of supernatural because it has been supernatural. All through the ages since Jesus gave the Great Commission, and as I've said many times, the work of the gospel through local churches is the only thing on the earth that Satan supernaturally opposes. He's happy to let everything else transpire, but the Great Commission and the gospel has been supernaturally opposed for two millennia, and yet it is moving across the face of the earth in a marvelous way. But there are still big segments of the world's population that have never heard the name of Jesus or had a clear presentation of the message of salvation. Now, how can I say that? You say, the nations of the world seem to be connected. Technology allows us to communicate more and more. Well, you see, you have to understand the difference, listen, between a nation and a people group. Some of you that know a little bit about global outreach know where I'm going. This may be new, though, to others. There is a difference between a country, a political entity, and a people group. Now, um, I decided to get the, the latest figures on how many countries exist in the world. And so I contacted the U.S. State Department yesterday. Yes, I have connections. <laughs> it's called the World Wide Web, and I have a password. <laughs> they confirmed that the United States State Department recognizes 195 countries around the world. 195 countries, political entities. Now, that's what Jesus was referring to when he said the nations, and it's translated here, the nations, then in a sense, the gospel has gone to just about every political entity in the world in some way or another. But Jesus didn't really put his finger on political nations because, see, political nations rise and fall. They come and go. There was no Russia or Kenya when Jesus gave this command. It's not tied to political entities that come and go. People groups are different. The the type of group that Jesus was talking about here 
When, he, when, when he talks about making disciples of all nations, the word for nations in Greek is ethne, from which we get our English word ethnic. Ethnicity is not tied to the boundaries of a nation or a, or a politics. It's tied to two things, language and culture. Now, when you take a look at language and culture and you define the people groups of the world by that, the number goes from 195 to 17,400 and counting. We today still don't know how many separate language groups or cultural groups exist around the world today. We still don't know how many. What's the difference, you say, between a nation and a people group? Well, let me illustrate. Nigeria is a single political nation. But did you know that in Nigeria, there are at least 540 distinct people groups of language or culture? Isn't that astounding? So the, the nation itself may have a gospel witness, but there are 540 distinct language niches or cultural niches that may or may not have and probably don't. This is why we support Bible translation. Bible translation is the, is the best way to get into an unreached people group, create a, a written language around their spoken language, and then bring the scriptures into it, and then the gospel flourishes as a witness. That we have to penetrate the language and learn the culture, and then we begin to reach that people group. So when you look at it that way, currently we count 17,400 distinct people groups. That's what Jesus was talking about. I'll never forget sitting in missions class with my missions professor at Talbot Seminary many years ago, Dr. Lloyd Quast, when he made that explanation and the light turned down on my head about world missions and about the essentially impossible task. I looked at that and I thought, how in the world is that going to happen? And the answer I learned was, it's not, there's no wor worldly answer to how that happens. There's only a supernatural answer, how God has designed it. And he is the one who is powering the Great Commission. But you think about it, 17,400 ethnic people groups. And, and when we look at that today, how many of those 17,000 have been reached? See, that's another way to ask the question, has the world been reached or not? Politically, most of these nations have some tie to a gospel witness because of how our world is connected. But we're not talking about political nations. We're talking about people groups, some of them very small. In PNG, when we minister, our missionaries are still, as they move out into the, into the, 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 the outer parts of that island nation, they're still coming across language and people groups today that nobody has ever discovered. That's why the number keeps growing. So if, but we'll just take the current number, 17,400. What's an unreached people group by definition? It's a people group where there are less than 2% of the population that are Christ followers and less than 5% are professing Christians. If, if, that, if the Christian witness is, is less than that, it's classified as unreached. And it makes sense. The vast majority have no way to meet a Christian or hear the gospel. Now, how have we done to this point in terms of reaching these 17,000 plus people groups. Well, I have some good news and then I'm going to move into the challenge. Right now, we believe 
that around 10,000 of the 17,000 people groups worldwide, listen, have been reached. They do have a, a, a consistent gospel witness. They do have the word of God in, in such a context that they can know it and understand it. Now pause there for a minute. We go right by that and we don't understand. That's a celebration point. 17,000 people groups and already 10,000 of them have been reached by the gospel. That's awesome. That's fantastic. That means that what Jesus said when he started uh, the, the whole understanding of reaching the world, when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, do you realize that that is being proven true every day? We've already seen 10,000 of these 17,000 people groups reached. That is miraculous. That means Jesus is fulfilling the promise he made. And when Jesus said in another prophecy that this gospel shall be preached to all the nations, said it in Matthew, said it in Mark, at one time in the future of the globe, this gospel will be preached to all the nations. It also means we're moving progressively toward that. That's exciting. That's awesome. We, we should not overlook that. That's a supernatural work of God. And we've been a part of that over the last 50 years. We have been part of that moving miracle. Now, when you think about the other part, this is where the challenge enters in. 10,000 of the 17,000 have been reached, but you're already ahead of me. It still means over 40% of the world's people groups still have no indigenous community of believing Christians able to evangelize the rest of their people group. So that leaves 7,000 plus people groups that have not been reached. 10,000 reached, we know it happens and can happen. 7,000 plus have not been reached. That's why we still have a great commission. That's why we still lead people into the mission field. That means over 42% of the world's population uh, lives in these 7,000 plus people groups. Let me give you a number. That's 3 billion people. 3 billion people. When it comes to dollars these days, that's not a big number. When it comes to humans heading into an eternity, that's an immense number. That's why we still have a burden to reach the world. That's why the Great Commission matters. It's not done. Now you listen to that, and in your mind you may be saying, that's, that's so many. In fact, you may be even saying that's too many. There will never be enough missionaries. When I understand what a missionary is, there are never going to be enough missionaries to reach all those people, humanly speaking. And that's where you're wrong. That's where you're wrong. Because this isn't going to be done in any way that's, well, humanly speaking. Because you see, this is not a human challenge and it's not a human endeavor. It's something that God is doing through his church. Another way of saying this, yes, it's a big number. Yes, there are many lives hurtling toward eternity without Christ. But God has got this, listen, because he's got you. God has got this because he's got you. Because you have a place in this. And I have a place in this because every believer has a place in the Great Commission. Now, with that understanding, I want to prove that to you from this text. 
You see, it's not just the established missionary. It's not the career missionary alone at a point on the field or in a training dimension here in the United States spreading their influence worldwide that is doing this work. No, if it's just that cohort of people, it will not get done. But no, the whole church, every person within the the reach of my voice today that's a believer has a place. It may be in prayer, it may be in giving, it may be in training, it may be in a lot of other things. We all have a place. And if we all heard that call, this is doable. So let me take you now into the passage itself. And I really want to teach a part of the passage that's really seldom been taught. When people teach the Great Commission, which part of Matthew 28 do they usually go to? They go to the last two verses verses 19 and 20, because that's, that's, that's the commission part. That's the order. That's the, that's the commandment. Now, I want to give you a perspective in the earlier verses that I think will change your understanding of who this was spoken to. Now, as you talk about reaching the world, it's an inspiring and moving idea, and it should be. Lost people being drawn out of darkness and into light, and, and often when We talk about missions, our minds go back to people that have been uniquely used and they've they've made some great statements about what it's like to reach the world. And uh, it's a time for stirring quotes many times when we talk about this. Many times we hear different people from from the past in in, in missions life and, and their quotes have outlived them. And I'll give you a few of the more famous statements by people that have been involved in world missions in times past. David Livingstone was regarded as, as a person that was part of the emerging missions movement in the 1800s when world missions began to actually catalyze in the English-speaking church. It hadn't been as active before that time, but he and William Carey were two men that God moved upon to go into areas that were unreached and, and carry the message. David Livingstone was a successful physician in London. He walked away from all of that to go into the unreached portions of Africa. He regarded it as a high honor, not a sacrifice. And this is what he said toward the end of his career. Quote, I'm a missionary, heart and soul. God himself had an only son, and he was a missionary and a physician. A poor, poor imitation of him I am, or wish to be. But in this service I hope to live, in it I wish to die. I still prefer poverty and mission service to riches and ease. This is my choice. End of quote. That statement by him moved in the hearts of many people in the following generation, and the missions movement expanded worldwide because of his example. Just before my generation, there was a a man named Jim Elliott, whose life story moved me as I read it as a younger person after his death. And as I, as I listened to Elizabeth Elliott, his wife, speak at a missions conference I attended called Urbana in 1979, and it stirred me to move further into my plans for ministry. Jim Elliott was a missionary to the Quechua Indians in South America for just a few weeks. Prepared for it for years, was there only a few weeks when he was speared to death on a beach by the people he was seeking to reach. But his missionary career, though it was only a few weeks, was fuller after his death because the news of their death went around the world. The world was astonished by it. 
And his writings were discovered in which, among other things, Jim Elliot wrote this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so he was a living image of giving everything that he couldn't keep in an effort to go and gain eternal reward. Jim Elliot's life didn't have the impact that his death did because when he died, a whole generation of college students in the 50s and 60s committed to world missions and missions came into its modern era. And so you see, God is always in control of every dimension of what happens, isn't he? I listened to his wife some 20 years later at a missions conference. Her words stirred me as she went back to the same Indians that took her husband's life, founded a church there with another missionary team, and they, that people group is reached today. <laughs> and the leaders of that tribe went on to become elders, pastors, and world reachers on their own. You see the supernatural power of the gospel. Last person was Bob Pierce, who... Uh, founded World Vision and, and now Samar- and Samaritan's Purse, which we've been involved with as a church for years, as you know. And he brought the, the ministry of God into the physical needs of the world, the needs of poverty and medical needs. And he's famous for saying, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And that propelled uh, the, the, the missionary dimension of of, of service and meeting the physical needs of people into a new generation. So you listen to all these people and you're moved by them and you should be, and I have been, but here's the thing. If we listen to only statements like that, we might come to believe that people involved in missions are unusual people who also have unusual experiences. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you draw that impression from these singular people Now we quote them and and God used their lives to have a great impact, but there are multiplied thousands of others who made the same sacrifices and have been involved in missions through whom God also worked. Those three men did not reach 10,000 people groups. (laughs) Many others have. And so the point I'm making to you is don't get the wrong impression that to be involved in world missions mean you need to be an unusual person who's had an unusual experience or calling. No, all of us are to be involved in it. In fact, these people were not unusual. Jim Elliott was going to go into a life in business after he graduated from Wheaton College. Then he discovered he had a great preaching gift, so they put him into a pastoral ministry track. He was going to be a pastor like myself in an an American congregation. Missions was the third dimension and third step in his life. So he went through a process to decide. There was no lightning bolt moment for Jim Elliott. Jonathan Kopf last year who spoke to us said he was happy and content as a contractor in the business world, but there was a stirring in his heart that over the years just would not let loose of him. And he decided to just each day follow that a little bit more. And now God has opened the door and he's planting churches in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. But he's an ordinary guy. He's not an unusual person with an unusual experience. He was an ordinary person who began to realize the greatness of the Great Commission, and it began to stir in his heart and to the point where he, 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 he lost the ability to say no to it. That's really what happens. I mean, John Christensen last week, remember this story? She had the call and, and a sense of going to the mission field early in her life. He didn't. They were married for quite a while. She was content to just be right in the middle of the will of God and pray about it and pray for him. And you remember what happened to him. He was sitting in his easy chair at their house after just doing a nine to five job. And he, and he just sat up one evening and said, you know, I think there's something on my heart to go to take the word of God to unreach people. I mean, for crying out loud. <laughs> I mean, you can't be, be more unreachable than sitting in an easy chair watching the prices, right? Can you? I mean, that's it. 
and your God comes. Ask people that are in ministry today. Most of us did not have a lightning bolt moment, and most of us, and our spouses will completely confirm this, are not unusual people. (laughs) We were just people who realized the greatness of the Great Commission, and we had a growing inability to say no. And so, really, the, the, le- the, the focus of my teaching here is, is why you won't be able to say no to some involvement, whether it's giving, whether it's praying, whether it's short-term work, whatever it is for you, or maybe training for the foreign field. None of us should really be able to say no to what God wants if we understand that the Great Commission is not for unusual people or with an unusual experience, it's for everyone. So that's the premise that I wanted to kind of paint for you. Now to the passage, and I'm going to show you two reasons why the Great Commission becomes understandable and when you re- how you realize it connects to you. You will realize it connects to you when you realize two things about it. Now to your Bible. The first thing you'll need to realize about the Great Commission in order to understand that it applies to you, wherever you are, is when you understand and realize that we are all sent to reach the world. Circle the world all if you've got your notes or underline it if you're following on the phone app or whatever. That's a key word. Now, where do I get this? I get this from my study of the part of the Great Commission that's not frequently taught. It's verses 16 and 18 to 18. It's the context of the commission. You see, as I've studied it over the years, I've come to the conclusion that the Great Commission didn't happen the way that I always thought it did. The way I always thought the Great Commission happened was that Jesus, after he had risen, and appeared to his disciples, appeared to them a final time on the Mount of Olives toward the end of his earthly ministry before he ascended, and he appeared to just the 11, and he gave the Great Commission to just the 11. Now, without a show of hands, many of you, I would think, have thought the same thing. It was given on the Mount of Olives toward the end of his ministry, and it was given just to the 11 apostles. Isn't that the way we envision it? And so we think, it was, it was a great commission given to 11 great men. And they were supposed to go out and do this. And over the years, they would influence other unusual people who would go out and do the unusual things that they did. But we get in our minds, it was to just those guys and to just that place. And I've come to believe that I was wrong on both counts. You say, how can you be wrong and teach the Bible? It's easy. When you figure out you're wrong, you change. <laughs> I studied the context, I began to look at what people were writing about this, and I realized the Great Commission probably didn't happen that way. How do I know this? Go back to Matthew 26 and verse 32. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his crucifixion and his resurrection, and he predicts to them in in Matthew 26 and verse 31, he tells them that this very night the shepherd will be struck and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. I'm going to be taken, betrayed, and I'm going to go through the torment and the crucifixion, but I will rise. And in verse 32, he says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He's talking to the, to the disciples in the upper room, isn't he? And he's saying, when I, must, but when I rise from the dead, I'm going to meet you in my risen person at a place in Galilee. This is important. 
after he was raised from the dead in Matthew 28, verses 6 and 7, he says the same thing again. This is in the garden, resurrection morning, Easter morning, if you will. And he meets uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary in the garden. They see him in his resurrected body. They worship him. But Jesus said, well, the angels actually before they see Jesus, they see him in, him in verse 9, but they come to the empty tomb, they see the rock rolled away, there's an empty tomb, there is an angel there, and, and the angel says in verse 6, he's not here, for he is risen. Can I get an amen? Okay, you are alive and you are risen, in, in the sense that you know Jesus loves you. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said, come see the place where he lay, look at this, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, there you will see him. Who was he talking to? Not the 11 disciples, two followers of Jesus, two women. Now this expands the picture, doesn't it? He says, listen, after I rise, come and meet me. And at a place in Galilee. So what this all amounts to is that Jesus designed a meeting with more than the 11. It was to his followers, including these two women, at a place in Galilee. Now, where could that place be? Glad you asked. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives us a clue. Paul talks about the resurrection and the proofs of it years later. 20 years later, he writes to the Corinthians, and he talks about the appearances of Jesus. I don't know if you realize this, but as you look at the New Testament in the historical record, there are at least 10 post-resurrection appearances before Jesus ascended to heaven, in which he appeared in, in his resurrected body to people. Wasn't just to the disciples in the upper room, wasn't just to Mary on the, on the garden pathway, at least 10 events over 40 days of time. I'm amazed at that. This was no smoke and mirrors little trick. He was risen. And you see, Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. There's a crucifixion, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, the resurrection, in accordance with the scriptures, just as the Old Testament had prophesied, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Stop there. Okay, we know about appearing to the 12, the Bible also says he did an individual appearance to, to Peter. There were others. In verse 7, he says, also appeared individually to James, and then finally appeared individually to Paul. So there were at least four right there. But there was another event where he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, all in a crowd. Now, Bible scholars have looked at this, People like Dr. Warren Wiersbe and Dr. H. Spence Jones and others, and they've come to the conclusion that according to the Bible record, this must have been at, on the mountain in Galilee where Jesus said to the women and, and said to the disciples, you come to a place I'm going to tell you in Galilee and you will see me. And in fact, it was a call to all of his followers. So here's my conclusion. When you look at Matthew chapter 28, it says that it happened not on the Mount of Olives, but it says in verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to where? Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. 
We know from the other texts that it wasn't a direction he just gave to the 11. He gave it to his followers in general, Mary and others. And so we can conclude, according to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, that there weren't just the 11 on a hillside that day. There were hundreds and hundreds of his followers that day. Now, do you understand what that means? The Great Commission was not just an unusual challenge given to 11 unusual people. It was an eternal challenge given to hundreds of everyday people. Now you're starting to see this, aren't you? See, the Great Commission was given to all of the followers of Jesus. Can you imagine what it would have been like on the hill that day? I mean, wow. I mean, the disciples had gotten used to seeing the risen Jesus, (laughs) if you can get used to that. I mean, you remember the first time when he walked through the wall in the upper room there, you know? They were terrified. They didn't know if they believed or didn't believe. And he finally said, put your hand in the nail. I mean, see, see, see me, I'm right here. And so they, they, they got over the shock and they got over the doubting and the scripture says they believed and, and they must have seen him at other times because Luke in the end of his gospel says, and there were many other appearances of, that he had with them. So they were used to it by now. But the other followers hadn't seen the risen Jesus. They were just going there by faith to that mountain. And I can imagine that they were all gathered and, and you know, a little bit like before church, everybody talks and finds somebody they know and, and they, they wonder what the message is going to be like. Well, here they were all talking, saying, I'm here, but I don't know what to expect. I was told that Jesus had risen from the dead. His teaching changed my life. I followed him for three years, but I, I don't, is he risen? And what would this be like? And they're all kind of talking with each other. They're there by faith, but they've never seen him. And the disciples might be at the top of the mountain kind of elbowing each other and saying, man, and they, they, they're going to see something amazing. <laughs> I mean, we know what it's going to be like. And the quiet came over the crowd at a certain point, And then suddenly at the top of the hill, eternity splits into time. And the supernatural becomes visibly natural. And my interpretation, there's the risen Lord at the top of that hill. That's what I think was going on. Now, when he appeared in that way, they fell down and worshiped him. It says verse 17, and when they saw him, who's the they? It's all those people. They saw him and they worshiped him. Proskuneo means to be flat on your face in worship and in awe. Of course, the Son of God in glory. Of course, you're struck with awe. Now it says that some doubted. Who were the doubting ones? I don't think it was the 11 disciples. They'd been through this before. They knew what they knew. They'd seen it. It had to be the others in the crowd. Then it says something beautiful, and Jesus came. It's the idea here of coming down from that place of arrival on the top of the mountain, and he came toward them, and it's almost a sense that he walked among them. They're flat on their faces, trembling. And Jesus comes close and walks among them so that if they wanted, they could reach up and feel his robe brushing by. And he came among them. I just love that. The risen God of glory. And they began to look at him and they began to come to their feet and realize they were seeing the truth. And then something even more intimate happens. And he said to them, 
This is not a word of preaching. It's not a word of declaration. It's laleo in the Greek, and it, it meant speak to them personally. It was the word of conversation. I don't know how to imagine this, but Jesus walked among those hundreds of believers, perhaps in their stunned moment, and he began to speak to them as a crowd, but also perhaps individually. And then he gave them the great commission. It's as if he's walking among them saying, it is me. Don't be afraid. And I have something to tell you. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the peoples. You see, that's how I think it happened. What touched me about that was I noticed something he didn't do. He didn't call 11 men out of that crowd of hundreds and bring them up to the front and say, you're special. You're my apostles. I'm giving this special commission to you. Notice that's not there. He gave it. He spoke to them. Now, if my understanding is accurate, he didn't pick out 11 certain special people. He spoke to every single person. So here's the overwhelming conclusion. Jesus didn't give a great commission to 11 great men. He gave an eternal commission to everyday people. That's critical. That's when it came alive for me. Because I'm a Christ follower. I'm not a very good one. I'm certainly not a brave one. But I'd like to think that I would have been on the hill that day because I wanted to follow him and I wanted to know him. And if I was on the hill that day, he would have been speaking to me. And you would have been on the hill that day if you love him. And he would have been speaking to you. And so the first reason that the Great Commission becomes something that I realize is just for me is because I realize that we were all sent to reach the world. Do you see that? Do you get that? moving from that, let me take you into the, the portion of verse 18 that's missed too. The second thing that allows the call of the nations to become irresistible to you, that helps you understand that it applies to your life. Not only do you understand that all of us have been called, but here's the second one. When you realize that we are all accountable to Jesus for this, this is important. Think about the times when you've heard the Great Commission taught. Think about the times when you've heard world missions urged upon you. I think about the many times it's happened in my life, and I realize that many times, most of the time, the great basis of it was the need in the world. Isn't that right? And I told you this beginning about the need in the world, didn't I? So that's a very real reason to go. But actually, Jesus didn't need, he didn't lead, rather, with the need. When you look at the whole context and see what happened just before verse 19, we, we have the go, in, therefore, in verse 19. That's an imperative, by the way. It's a command, and it's to everybody on the hillside, so it's to you and me. Somehow in our life, we're supposed to be involved in reaching the nations. But there's a therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore. Usually you can find it a few words earlier, and there it is. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Go, therefore. 
Why do we get involved in reaching people for Jesus? Why do we get involved in supporting the gospel around the world too? Why do we speak to our neighbor? Why do we give to a ministry in P&G? Because of their need? Yes, but there's also a greater reason, Jesus says, because I have authority and I have told you to do this. His authority is the greatest reason behind our obedience. We forget that link and and you see, if we, if we forget that, we lose the burden of it. And we don't understand that we're accountable to Jesus for that. Now, there's two texts that I'm going to lead you to as we close it up here that I think put a real serious dimension to me for this. Um, you see, we, we think that the Great Commission was given And the whole idea of reaching the nations began in Matthew 28 and verse 19. Not true. Actually, the Great Commission was given at a different point in time entirely. Daniel chapter 7, please. Daniel 7 tells us a bit more about Jesus and the nations. Daniel 7, a vision God gave to the prophet Daniel in his captivity centuries before Jesus walked the earth. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Who is that? That's Jesus. That's the title that he bears as the master of all humanity, all history, as the creator God, but also the one who came to the planet as the perfect man, who came to the cross and bought a people for himself, who rose from the dead to prove it, who is now at the right hand of God in heaven, and who will come one day as the Son of Man and take possession of the whole world. Big title. I saw one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. Who might that be? God the Father, the Eternal One. And was presented before him. What we're seeing here is an interaction between two persons of the Trinity in heaven. And I believe it was an eternity past. God gives Daniel an insight through a vision as to what happened between the Father and the Son at some time in eternity past. Next verse. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion. That's a word for authority. When Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Could he have been speaking about this? All authority has been given. To him was given dominion, the right to rule over creation and over a people. And glory and a kingdom, very important. A kingdom is a gathering of people that follow a king. The great object of all human history has been God giving his son as a sacrifice for a people who would ultimately follow his son as king. He built a kingdom, and that kingdom is still being built today. What's the goal of this? That all peoples, nations, ethne, Matthew 28, 19, all people groups, and look at this, Languages should serve him. See, it's not about political entities being reached. It's about 
peoples and ethne and languages and the kingdom of God when we get to heaven and it's visibly revealed and it moves into its physical reality is going to be made up of all peoples and all nations and all languages and we'll be serving him. That's the goal. I looked at this and I realized, to me, the Great Commission didn't begin in Matthew 28 in Galilee 2,000 years ago. Listen to this. It began in the heavenly throne room an eternity ago. And it rises on the authority of the Lord Jesus to receive the glory from peoples, from every people group in the world, to receive the honor, to be followed as a king, and to be given dominion. That's where this is all going. Now, that's where I believe the Great Commission was given. That's why he said, I have all authority. I've had it from eternity past. I'm God. Based on my authority, I tell you to go. That's why we go. That's why we minister. That's why you do your ministry. That's why you stay faithful to Jesus. It's not because of the results. It's not because of the glory. It's not because of the satisfaction. It's not because of how easy it might be. No, you go because he said go. You obey because he said obey because he is worthy of all honor and glory. Isn't he? For this son of man came out of eternity into time and bought you with his own blood. Worthy, isn't he? Now, here's here's where I want to bring it to a point of realization for some of us. Often, the authority of Jesus is taught as a comforting truth, and it is. I claim it all the time. When I'm in spiritual battle, when I'm in human battle, I'm so grateful that I worship a God and I walk with a Jesus who has all authority. Look what he said, in heaven and on earth. He's got all authority over everything that happens to me and mine in this earthly life every molecule, every moment. And he also said he has authority in heaven. That means he's the ultimate authority over the supernatural world, both the good and the wicked. No devil can do anything in my life unless that action is filtered through the hands of my Lord and he's going to use it for good. So it's of great comfort. But here's the other thing. It also should be of a certain, in a certain dimension, well, can I use the word confronting? Because if he has authority, one day he has the authority to ask me what I've done with what he told me to do. Doesn't that make sense? Last passage. Where will that happen? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that when we go to the Father's house, either when the rapture occurs and we're taken away before death or if we physically die and we are there with him as the rest of the, rest of the world rolls on into further judgment and tribulation. We're going to be in heaven. And one of the great events there for the church is going to be what's called the, uh, the judgment seat. Now, don't get that incorrectly in your mind. All judgment was taken by Jesus for your sin at that cross. When we come before him in 2 Corinthians, it is not for judgment, but it's for reward. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us what it is. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let me 
pull that apart for you a little bit. Judgment seat, Greek translation from Bema, and it came to describe a raised platform that was in the center of most Roman cities, and it was the place where when the athletic games were completed, the judge of the games gave rewards for those who had placed in the Olympics. Placed a wreath over your head and honored you before the others. They knew in in Corinth what Paul was speaking about. They knew that they were running a race. And when they get to heaven, the race is done and they'll appear before the, the marvelous judge of the great race and they'll receive their reward for running. Bible teaches that instead of a little olive wreath around our heads, I believe we're going to receive crowns. And by the way, there's more than one. That's where we'll receive crowns and we'll receive the authority to minister in the millennium and in ways that we never imagined and ways to rule and minister with him and for him and dimensions that we don't even understand that go into the eternal state of honor and opportunity. So it's a place of reward, not judgment. When he says here, you'll be, you'll be receiving what is due for what you've done in the body. That's not talking about moral sin or sexual sin. In the body means during your earthly life, when you were physically alive. Now, Jesus said, when you come to Christ, all authority has been given to me. Go and reach people for, him, for my name. You have this lifespan in your body to do that. I'm concluding that at the end of time, when you're in the Father's house, he's going to look at what you did in your physical life. Does that make sense? How did you serve him? You'll receive what's due for you. That's, now, you, know, you can receive judgment, but that was all placed on Christ. What would be due for you? A reward is due for you. An honor is due for you. And elsewhere in scripture it says some will receive more honor, some will receive less, but we'll all be blessed and we'll be with him and he's the perfect reward and everything. So they'll be fully satisfied. But the Bible says there'll be degrees of reward. I don't know how to explain that, but there it is. It's not punishment, it's reward. And when he says what you did, rather good and bad, that's not talking about moral good. The word bad there is the word that described useless or of no importance. So he's going to look at your life and mine what we did in the lifespan of our physical existence, having been given the great commission and the call to become like Christ. And he's going to see how did we honor him in our character and holiness. But he's also going to see what did you do in my labor that I gave you in the great commission? And he'll take a look at what we did in that great commission and his power under his authority, depending on him. That has value to him. That's good to him. It means something to him. Everything else we might have done in our physical life that was not for the things of God, not for what he wanted, doesn't mean anything to him. It's worthless to him. And so he doesn't regard it. And so what means something to him, which is the saving of souls and the reflection of Jesus, he'll reward. I hope you see that whole picture. So I look at that and I think about it all the time these days. And I ask God to allow me to receive, as he works through me, reward I labor for that. So here's my conclusion. We've all received the great commission by his authority. And one day we will all appear before him to show him what we did. And so there comes a certain sense of accountability for authority. And you always have accountability with authority, don't you? So I just want that to lay under your head. And so uh, your heart rather and understand that. So in closing, you know, it, it, was, it was the great commission. It was given as a commandment. It's not the great option. Or it's not the great exception for unusual people who've had unusual experiences. It's for all of us. And you may be saying, how in the world 
Can I respond to that? It's an overwhelming call. Well, of course it is. Number of things. One, you can begin in your heart as we close in prayer to confess that you have not been as responsive to this as you now see his authority said you should. Simple confession to him. Secondly, you might begin praying out of the impact of this message about what God would have you do and let him move in your heart and mind through the word of God under the power of the Holy Spirit. And you may see a new dimension of your life emerging. Third, you may begin by just moving in the physical nature of your life by beginning to give and mit- to get to missions. Maybe you've never done that in your life. Maybe that's a step of faith for you. Fourth, you might decide to break through the missions wall of opening the gospel to people who are in your life stream more, building more gospel conversations and asking God to bear fruit in your very own Jerusalem. And then finally, you might just offer yourself to him for whatever else he might have you do in the great call of missions to all the nations. Maybe praying. It may be getting closer to a missionary you know as a person of encouragement. It may be a financial commitment you make. It may be asking God for leading into a short-term missions experience where you could be a difference maker even for a short period of time and encourage a missionary team overseas. It may be offering yourself for further education to know if it might not be true that you are being moved to be a career missionary. I don't know. God knows. But really, In life and in ministry, we simply have to realize that God usually leads you enough for the moment. This is very important. When you think about being used of God, we have these huge images of unusual people with unusual experiences, and that's the vast exception. Most people are in ministry today because God led them moment by moment, and they were sensitive to it moment by moment. And they just did the next thing that they thought God would want them to do, and God opened the path. That's been true all of my life. I mean, do you realize that if you were simply to do what you believe Jesus wanted you to do each day of your life, you would probably be in the center of where he wants you to be at any point in your life? You ever think about that? Maybe today is a place where you start to get into that habit and the Great Commission becomes greatly clear to you. Thanks for listening and thanks for being a part of this unusual trip through Scripture.